This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Well, let it snow Man, while you're actually inside rather than having to deal with it outside. But we know that that's not the case around the world. You have to go out, you have to get in the car, and you got to use some energy and got to use natural gas to heat your home. Stuart Glickman is the head of energy research at CFRA Research, and uh, he joins us now on the phone line. Stuart, thanks very much for being, uh, for being with us today. Happy New Year to you. Why are natural gas prices down more than 4% on a day when everyone's looking out the window thinking, boy, we're going to use a lot more natural gas to heat our homes? Yeah, it's a good question, Tim. I think it's a a combination of two factors. One, um, it's perhaps that, um, you know, the, the weekly inventory numbers came out today, and, and certainly natural gas inventories were down, which you would expect to be the case, but perhaps not down as much as, as perhaps people thought. And then maybe secondarily, and I think this is probably the bigger factor, is that, um, you know, markets are responding to what they think is going to happen next, not what's happening necessarily today with the weather. Um, and so some of the forecasts later out into January show a warming trend. And so I think there's a, a reflection in, in the, the markets for natural gas today that, you know, perhaps this is as, as uncomfortable as it is uh, for a lot of people trying to commute home today. It's not going to last. Is there anything that you're seeing in terms of supplies and drawdowns on supplies in the numbers that makes you think that some of the energy companies uh, in the NatGas gas space might do something differently over the next 6 to 12 months in terms of production or investments? Well, uh, you know, the first thing to look at is inventories. And, and inventories right now are down about 6% relative to the five-year average, which is a nice trend. It's, you know, the last couple of years, we've, we've sort of consistently been above that five-year average trend. Um, I, I'm not sure they're necessarily going to do anything really differently, except perhaps go after the acreage that they think is, is the lowest cost. Uh, you know, it's, and this is a function of, you know, natural gas has been kind of mired in this $3 per, per million BTU range for, for quite a while. And so the names that we like, uh, like, for example, Cabot Oil and Gas or EQT Corp um, are names where we think their cash cost positions are on, you know, better than average. And so they probably are going to be able to make hay more so than some of the other companies that have uh, higher, higher cost operations. Stuart, when crude oil, or if it hits $62 a barrel, it's right now at $61.94 on the NYMEX. If it goes to $62, do, they, do the uh, shale producers, they flip an on switch because they know they can make more money? That is the most interesting question of the day, uh, and, and probably for the last couple of weeks, is what will these guys do when oil prices get a six-handle on them, which is where we are now? Because they have talked a really good game the last four to six months about how they are going to exercise capital spending discipline, and they're going to live within their means, within their cash flows. And I am of the opinion that you know, they just sort of, when, when push comes to shove and they see that there's a six-handle out there, they're just not going to be able to help themselves, and they're going to continue to overproduce 
and spend outside of their cash flows, and eventually crude prices are going to respond south again. Is this good for the companies that use uh, fossil fuel as a feedstock? I'm thinking of uh, even refiners, but particularly in the plastics and chemicals industry. Uh, certainly, the folks in the plastic space that, that use especially natural gas as a feedstock, they've been benefiting for, for several years for, from very cheap natural gas. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think pro- natural gas prices probably head up a little bit, but I don't think anywhere close to the kinds of levels we saw a decade ago. There's just too much natural gas floating around out there to, to get there. Um, and so I, I, think, I think that's definitely a positive for them. As for refiners, um, you know, the spreads that they've been able to extract from the refining process have gotten very good um, over the last 12 months, and the stock prices for a lot of the refiners have responded really nicely. I mean, refining is, is really the only bright spot in 2017 for energy. If you look at where, uh, you know, on a sub-industry level, if you look at where those um, – those different sub-industries fared. Most of them were down last year. Hey, just about 30 seconds here left, Stuart. Uh, Trump administration proposing to almost uh, open almost all U.S. coastal workers to oil drilling. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, I mean, unless it's going to make financial sense, these are huge investments that these firms need to do to do this. Um, just got about 20 seconds. Should we be looking at this closely or kind of a wait-and-see rule at this moment? I think that's a really long-term proposition. It's going to take a ton of money to invest in there. You're going to have to do more seismic. Uh, it's a multi-year process to drill anything um, offshore. It's much much faster, much quicker to go onshore. All right, got it. Good stuff. Stuart Glickman, thank you very much. Head of Energy Research at CFRA Research, uh, joining us uh, on the phone in New Jersey. protection from the new tax overhaul, especially when we're talking about state and local taxes. Before the ink was even dry on the Republican tax bill signed into law late last month, state governments already gaming the new legislation. Here with more on what's going on, Patrick Clark, real estate reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York, along with Paul Graney, state and local tax leader at Marcus, with us on the phone from Boston. Patrick, set us straight. So what's going on at states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, where state and local taxes are high. Yeah, well, uh, it, it didn't take long for them to start talking about at least um, plans to uh, shift some of their uh, tax revenue or all of their tax revenue into uh, systems that uh, would would hold on to the federal deductibility. So. Uh, Governor Cuomo in New York yesterday during his uh, annual State of the State address uh, suggested that he was exploring, said he was exploring a plan to move to a payroll tax system uh, so employers would, uh, uh, employers presumably would, would, would pay a tax that, uh, you know, workers are currently paying through income taxes. That would, that would move uh, revenue into a place where, um, the, the the federal government wouldn't be getting its hands on it, basically, uh, and uh, we expect the bill to be proposed in the California uh, legislature this week as well. Um, that would use a a different sort of uh, tax game to uh, also try to hold on to uh, you know sort of state and local tax deductibility. Paul, uh, maybe you could uh, offer some thoughts here. Uh, is there anything really that the state legislators uh, could do at this point in order to change the tax burden that their residents might see in 2018? 
Well, the only way they can do it is, I mean, there's two pieces they're looking at. Um, you know, the one we talked about where they're trying to say instead of having an income tax, they're going to convert their tax to a, a payroll tax upon the employer. That's going to say there's going to be a tax to them based on how much they want to pay an employee. Um, the other one that they've talked about is doing um, tax-deductible charitable contributions to state governments, um, which I'm not sure how they would actually get that one through, but that's another piece that they've tried to put out there. Um, I don't know how they'd make that mandatory for people. But that's really the, the stretch that the states are trying to come through because the problems that they're running into is that they're, they're getting a lot of pressure from people saying that, you know, if you're in a high-tax state with large property tax, large income tax, once you have that $10,000 limit, people are, are going to be significantly adverse to any tax increase. And you've got up in Massachusetts, they're talking about a millionaire tax. They've got it in New York. You've got it in California. Mm-hmm. You'll start seeing the pushback from these people saying, why are you charging me a higher tax when I don't even get a, a federal tax deduction out of it? Right. In California, they have introduced uh, some legislation this week or plan to introduce some legislation this week that would allow residents to donate to a state entity. Uh, I think it's called the California Excellence Fund in lieu of paying taxes. Um, how likely, Paul, what are you hearing uh, that any of this is really likely to take hold? Pim and I are listening closely. We're both from high state income tax states. Uh, it, it's very difficult. That I mean, the, the, the charitable contribution one, I think, is the one that would create the most trouble because you would then have the IRS providing scrutiny on the activities of that charitable entity that money is going to get paid into. Um, and I would assume the money would then have to go into general state coffers. So um, that one would probably be the most problematic to try to do it. Um, switching to the payroll tax is, is a possibility. Um, again, there's a lot of other problems that would come through with that as to it could just cause people to try and shift income away from payroll and try to pay people as independent contractors and maybe avoid the tax that way. So. There's a lot of pitfalls that fall into this, and then you've still got the questions of what the federal government is going to say because their argument could be that all of this gerrymandering that the states are doing is just trying to create a deduction which is going to then decrease federal revenues. So, Paul, what are you doing? What am I, what per, what am I doing personally? Yeah, what are you doing? Help us here. I mean, give us an idea. I mean, you're an expert in this. What are, what are you doing, or is you as flummoxed by this whole thing as everybody else? Uh, well, basically, right now we are still, we're in that point of just trying to see what is going on. It's like, you know, the language is, is only a few weeks old, and we're still trying to get through all the minutiae in the tax bill to see what the rules are going to be. Um, you know, on the state and local side, it's it, it's pretty clear that you're going to get that one ten thousand dollar deduction. There's really not much else that can be done. So it's really just trying to discuss with with clients as to what their options are. Um, it, you know, to offset other pieces there. It's I mean, there's not much you can do if you've got high real estate and high income taxes. You know, you aside from trying to move to another state, right. Um, there's no way to really stop that. Patrick Clark, uh, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. So, uh, I mean, the momentum going to continue in these states for things to move forward just quickly. Yeah, I think there's a lot of political will. I mean, people are upset and I think feel it's unfair. And mm-hmm. um, so there, it, it's, it's good politics, even if it's hard to make the policy work. Right, right. Exactly. Certainly that's... Uh, 
politicians say that, you know, we're trying to do something. Patrick Clark, real estate reporter at Bloomberg News. Paul Graney, state and local tax leader at Markham. This is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Corey Johnson off today with me, Pim Fox, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. While the world's biggest chip makers and software companies, including Intel, including Microsoft, they are coming to grips with a vulnerability that leaves vast numbers of computers and smartphones susceptible to hacking and performance slowdowns. It's an ongoing story. We talked about it yesterday. We've got an update. Let's get to Mark Gurman, technology reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us, Oliver Tavakali. He is a chief technology officer at Vectra Networks. Uh, they're a cybersecurity firm. He joins us uh, from where the firm is uh, headquartered in San Jose, California. Mark, though, get us up to speed. Where are we on this story? Well, we're at all the major tech companies really coming to terms with the situation that really wasn't supposed to get out into the wild until January 9th. Pretty much any phone, tablet, gaming console, computer, anything with a processor, a chip, basically the brains of the devices, is pretty much affected. So they're all coming to terms with that. In terms of the latest updates, they're all now trying to push out patches to their different devices and users in order to quickly mitigate the problem. Oliver, what has been the industry response perhaps behind the scenes about relying on Intel for their future products? Um, so it's not just about Intel. I mean, I think um, the, sub, uh, the, the sub story here is that some of the techniques that are being used by all of the chip vendors, be it ARM, be it AMD, be it Intel, um, are really ultimately kind of responsible for this flaw that has now been discovered. Um, so while Intel um, is susceptible to uh, the additional piece, which is meltdown, I think Spectre uh, applies pretty much to everybody, uh, which is why we're talking about um, you know, not just servers and not just laptops, but also um, mobile endpoints and other things like that. Um, I think what we need to recognize is that what the industry is doing right now is effectively patching over a flaw. We are trying to solve in software what is effectively a design flaw or a design shortcoming in all of the hardware that we now have in the market. Um, those patches will be imperfect. They won't satisfy everyone. They will mitigate uh, the risk. They will reduce the likelihood of, of attacks. Uh, but they are not intellectually like complete in the sense that you can say this problem has been solved, and I don't think we can ever quite solve this particular problem. And Mark Gurman, part of the dilemma is, right, we want all of our devices to do more and more things, and we don't want to give up speed to do all those things. And that's what I think a lot of the chip makers are trying to balance. Yeah, that's exactly right, Carol. So there's a technology which is really at the heart of this that exists across all the products from different chip makers. It's called speculative execution. And it's basically a process that has to do with the computer's memory, its ability to store programs, so it can try to anticipate what the user is going to do next. So if it feels like you're going to open up this application next based on your usage habits, it's going to start launching some of the technology behind being able to launch the application, to your point, in order to pick up the speed. And within that, in terms of what Oliver alluded to, there's two different types of systems that are, are exploitable, and one is called Meltdown, and one is called Spectre, and they're the two types of different um, 
processes that hackers could theoretically use to break into a computer's memory, which can store things like sensitive information such as files in a person's login and password. Oliver, are these chips in automobiles, in aircraft, in sensitive medical technology in hospitals? Does this exist everywhere? Almost certainly on anything that is uh, that has been built in the last decade or so. The, the techniques that we're talking about, the speculative execution, are really techniques that, you know, once we hit the limits of what used to be called Moore's Law, which is that all the chips kept getting faster and faster all of the time, more and more creative techniques went into making them appear faster, which meant that rather than having them sit and wait, um, they would try things that might, you know, that they were trying to basically guess at what you would do next, or what would need to be done next, and do things in advance of when they were necessary, and this has led to the problem. So it is, it is endemic to a a form of thinking about the design of chips and the side effects of this speculative execution, which can be uh, effectively exploited by a, a, an attacker. So I would, I would be surprised if any airplane didn't within it have some chips someplace. Now, the thing, the, thing, the thing you need to realize is just because foundationally the chip has a flaw does not mean that that flaw is reachable by an attacker. There are plenty of systems out there that will not execute code given to it by an attacker. Um, and then there are other scenarios where that's pretty easy to do. So cloud systems are an example. You've seen both Amazon, AWS, and, and Microsoft with Azure effectively rebooting their clouds to take care of this problem because an attacker can easily rent a VM, rent a machine on those clouds, and effectively attack others on that same physical host. But airplanes and medical systems are generally closed systems where you can't simply proffer as an attacker some arbitrary set of code that should be executed by that system. So it's a lot easy, harder to exploit in those kinds of closed environments. Mark, again, I go back to should... I think I talked about this yesterday. Um, should not Intel and AMD and all the chip makers, don't they know that this is going on? Yeah, so Google actually has a, a research arm where they handle you know, the idea of looking for security exploits so they can patch it in their own devices. A lot of companies have similar uh, security teams working on this. They know about this. They've known about this for months. Google brought it to their attention sort of in a consortium-like fashion. All the big tech companies, chip makers, operating systems, software makers, chip makers, phone makers, et cetera, et cetera. They were all going to come make a joint announcement on January 9th mm -hmm. about this. And to mitigate the problem, they would all release patches. What happened was is that the information started leaking out early. Now all the companies are trying to get their patches out more quickly, and they're sort of racing to put their statements out. They right. tried to handle this responsibly. They tried to handle this effectively. Um, it's not really a problem for consumers. Okay. Let me step back. It's not a true problem for the mass consumer, you and I, using phones. Got it. Unless the exploit is publicly known. The second it becomes publicly known, then people are going to start trying to you know, exploit it. Mark Gurman. Mark Gurman, I got to run because we got to wrap up this story, but there'll be more to come. Mark Gurman, tech reporter at Bloomberg News, our thanks. Oliver Tavakali, chief technology officer at Vectra Networks, our thanks. Thanks to you as well. This is Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. The I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. Shake.
right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Let's take a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Thursday trade. Carol Master here along with Pim Fox. Corey Johnson is off today. S&P 500, 323 names in the index higher today, 178 lower, four unchanged. I do want to talk a little bit about Tesla, Pim, because there's a story, a couple stories out, but uh, the one that caught our attention, Tesla pushing back a production target for its Model 3 again after shipping fewer of the sedans than expected, setting back Elon Musk's goal to mass manufacture electric cars. Company now expects to assemble 5,000 Model 3s a week by the end of June, delaying plans to reach that milestone by another three months. Folks have been a little bit worried. you got to keep in mind this company is blowing through more than a billion dollars a quarter as it's had trouble scaling up output despite spending heavily on robots, assembly lines, and tooling for this sedan that is Elon Musk's cheapest yet. It starts at about $35,000. Tesla shares, PIM, at their lows were down 3.6%, bounced off of that just down about eight-tenths of a percent in today's trade, Three hundred. $14.62 a share. And I'm going to follow that up with a look at other automobile manufacturers, Good. mainly because there's a report from UBS uh, analyst Colin Langan saying that uh, auto dealers are set to outperform, mainly because they are going to be winners because of the new tax law, with rates that are 13 to 14% lower due to their high percentage, obviously, of U.S. profits. He also says that Ford and GM would see a relatively large, about a 10% benefit from lower U.S. tax rates rates, while the impact on suppliers is smaller. That'll range between 1% and 5%. He says that most automakers and suppliers currently pay no or limited U.S. cash taxes. Therefore, the headline cut should have limited effect on valuation. Taking a look at the shares of General Motors today, higher by 3%. Ford up about one and three quarters of a percent. That's a nice bump. Yeah, and um, Fiat Chrysler up 7.5%. All right, going in the other direction, we've got shares of Snap down 4.7% in today's session, down uh, about $0.72 to $14.59 a share. Uh, The stock, let me just take a look, because it got hammered last year. Did it not? Hmm. Uh, Snap? Yeah. Yes, it did get hammered last yeah, to year. to get hammered, right? Yeah, after, this after was the IPO. A, at one point, this was a $29 stock, and today it's $14.59. So it got, it got beaten up. Hey, yeah. Cowan analysts today, though, downgrading the recommendation on Snap to underperform from market perform. Uh, the analyst, John Blackledge, lowering the target price to $11 from $12, a little bit of a move there, uh, so implying a 28% decrease from the last regular trade. So, um yeah, a little bit of a downgrade, but the stock, as you mentioned, you know, it reminded me 2017 was not great for this company as, as people kind of question maybe the business model going forward. Well, no one's questioning the business model at Apple. Shares of Apple up about a half a percent today, but here's the news. The company says that $890 million was spent in the App Store for the week beginning Christmas Eve. The company says that there were $300 million in purchases made on New Year's Day. The top in the the, the top app in the the app store for the charts uh, on December 21st, Pokemon Go. 
and uh, also noting that in 2017, iOS developers, these mm -hmm. are the third-party developers, yeah. they earned $26.5 billion. That is a 30% increase from 2016. So a record-breaking holiday season for Apple, and the share is up a half a percent today. Impressive numbers. Hey, one more for you. Uh, L Brands, uh, number one decliner in the S&P 500, down more than 12%. Holidays, not especially kind to L Brands, which is the owner of Victoria's Secret shares of the company falling today, the most in about six months after it reported disappointing same-store sales for December. The retailer's updated profit forecast for the fourth quarter also was below estimates. So these latest results, uh, Pam, renewing concerns about L Brands turnaround efforts, some more concerns and troubling, uh, you know, worried about whether or not uh, it can make it all happen. Indeed. Um, you want to do the VIX? The VIX was oh, up today. Do, do you know that the uh, the VIX uh, was up one and a half percent? How is that when we've seen a, the market rally? Well, I don't know the answer other okay. than the fact that if you have something that's only trading at around uh, 9.01, that was on the open, and now it's 9.29, it's going to show up as a 1.5% increase, a gain of 0.14. VIX down 16% this year. So far. So far. Right? This is Bloomberg, everybody. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for a price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Hey, Mr. Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commerce. We meet again. Tell us about your stock of the day. Well, that would be regional management. This is a consumer finance company. It does business under the name Regional Finance. Uh, they operate in nine U.S. states, including their home state of South Carolina. All of them are in the South and Southwest, so that regional name is fitting. Regional management was founded in 1987 and went public in March 2012 under the ticker RM. The stock jumped more than 140% within the first two years of trading and then tumbled as U.S. regulators targeted another lender, World Acceptance. Uh, regional management had a gain today and again, you could say, was following the lead of another finance company. In this case, one main holdings. Private equity firms Apollo Global and Varde Partners reached a deal to buy a 40 and a half percent stake in one main for $1.4 billion. The seller was another private equity firm, Fortress Investment. Now, it's understandable that traders would make the connection between one main and regional management. They're in a similar business. And beyond that, regional management's largest shareholder, Basswood Capital, raised its stake to 13.1 percent and asked for a board seat last month. So whatever happens in that case, today, regional management rose 5.4%, closed at its highest price since March 2014. Some speculation, perhaps, that one deal may lead to another. And just to mention, you know, the uh, company you mentioned, uh, Basswood Capital, run by Matthew Lindenbaum. And uh, he's an expert when it comes to investing in these kinds of regional mid-cap uh, financial companies. Uh, he's uh, helped uh, get a board seat on Hudson Valley, as well as uh, Sterling Bank Corp. He pushed the merger through on that. Thanks very much, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my mind. 
Yeah, definitely on our minds today is Bloomberg Radio's 25th anniversary. Hard to believe, huh, Pim? 25 years. A quarter century of Bloomberg Radio, 24-7 business news yes, all over the world now. Yeah. Bloomberg Daybreak's uh, Bob Moon has been putting together some really cool stuff to commemorate the anniversary, taking us back actually to the very, very first day, January 4th, 1993, and uh, all that has happened since then. Listen up, everybody. A lot can happen in 25 years, and as of today, that's how long Bloomberg Radio has been bringing you all the stories that have changed the face of business. This was the day our founder, Michael Bloomberg, first signed on the air. Good morning. It's 5 a.m., January 4th, 1993, and the start of Bloomberg News Radio. From the very start, the goal of this 24-7 global business source has been clearly stated. Giving you what you need to know to be safe, to support your family, and to be entertained. For WBBR, Bloomberg News Radio, with the news that matters to you and speaking for our 950 people around the world this is michael bloomberg welcome make that a global team of more than 19,000 now including 2700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries and for two and a half decades bloomberg radio has become your trusted business source around the world of course we can barely scratch the surface of all the stories and sounds we've brought you over those years but we can remind you of some of the more significant ones bloomberg radio was less than five years old when Steve Jobs made his triumphant return to Apple back on July 9, 1997, and ultimately went way beyond evening the score for having been unceremoniously dumped. How can you get fired from a company you started? It took only a decade for Jobs to change the face of business. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Bloomberg Radio would also track the dot-com craze through the 1990s and into the new millennium. Stocks including America Online, Cisco, and Pets.com, as Bloomberg's Dave Wilson recalled. Their shares would rise three, four, five, even seven-fold on the first day of trading. And we would watch the bursting of the bubble that Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan had famously warned about. How do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values? We would be there, too, when there was no warning at all. September 11th, 2001. The full force of Bloomberg's resources. Carol Masser on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We've got an awful lot of activity, people kind of running around the floor. Everybody's obviously very upset about this. I can't tell. It looks like people are evacuating. Why don't we let you get out of there? And for a time, there would be a steady stream of stunning stories to report. Good morning, everyone. This Friday, December 12th, a difficult Friday. It is shock and scandal on Wall Street. Bernie Madoff, uh, money manager, uh, former chairman of the NASDAQ stock market, arrested and federal prosecutors called it just a stunning fraud. And you've got the fear that's out there. Who's exactly running my money? J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to buy Bear Stearns for $240 million in stock, a deal backed by the Federal Reserve, and here with more, Bloomberg's Karen Moscow. Ken, the price is about 90% less than Bear Stearns' value last week. Bloomberg Radio became your trusted source through the Great Recession and along the long road to recovery. It was almost a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, it's going to be a V. You know, the economy goes right down and bounces back up, which is always had. As we get into this a little further, we're getting more letters of the alphabet, an L, like Japan, where it goes down and stays there, maybe a U, where it goes down and stays there, comes back up. What did a lot of people see that made them change from a V to some other different letter? Well, there was an idea that these green shoots would be there and the recession would be over soon. I see more yellow weeds around. And perhaps there's never been a more dramatic example of how far we've come 
Just listen to where the stock market was that first day Bloomberg Radio signed on the air. Good morning from London. This is the Bloomberg World Markets Report. After a rise of 10 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average yesterday to 3,321, stocks moved higher. Of course, the Dow has added more than 21,000 points since then, and we've grown into a global team of more than 19,000 now, including 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. Yes, indeed, we have grown. Our thanks to Bob Moon for that report, right, Pim? It just takes you back to so many different things that have happened over the uh, last 25 years. You know who else can take us back? Charlie Pellet. Yes. He's, he's got a lot of stories, and one of them I'd like him to share is an interview that he did with uh, Apple co-founder yeah. Steve Jobs. I remember that day vividly. He came in, he sat down, we have an open office environment. He was a regular guy, sat down, talked, and we talked about Pixar, we talked about the movie that had just come, down, uh, come out. We had a lot, of, uh, a lot of fascinating conversations, but that was kind of the way Bloomberg was. These people would stroll in, uh, and, and those were back in the days when you didn't have security. People could just walk <laughs> into the office. Stunning. Very different time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's a great point, Charlie. I just think about the people who have walked through the doors here at Bloomberg. When we were at 499 Park, that's when I started with Bloomberg. Uh, and now, of course, here at uh, 731 Lexington. But it's just amazing. Uh, you know, all the powers that be in the worlds of business, politics, yep. uh, philanthropy, uh, you name it. Yep. Right, Charlie? And yep. yep. And can I tell you one thing, though, that that, uh, that Bob Moon's piece did not convey? First of all, it was wonderful hearing Ken Prude's voice in yes. there. We miss him. Yes. But what I wanted to say, too, is and I do not have a public relations angel sitting over my shoulder. But one of the things that he did not convey in that is the people component, not only of Bloomberg Radio, but the the company as well. We care a lot about what we do. We are passionate about it, and we love one another. We genuinely care about the people we work with. All right, shut up now, Charlie Pellet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we do love each other. Right, but it's, but it, but it's, you know, it's being no, able it's to trust co- your coworkers, being yep. able to know where they're coming from, know their perspective. It's very collegial. It it really is. And i got to be, having worked at a a bunch of different places, you don't find that uh, really in a lot of other places. It's really wonderful. And we don't have too many idiots around here, and that's a a (laughs) wonderful thing to say. We all want to see everyone do well, which is a really wonderful thing. Pim Fox? I agree. I was going to mention your comments from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on 9-11. Takes me back. I remember being on the floor and getting ready to go out and, and see what was going on, and then they closed down, locked down the New York Stock Exchange, and we couldn't leave and and had to wait for a couple of hours. But definitely takes us back. A lot has happened. And so great that Bloomberg Radio and all of these wonderful people have been able to be there along for the ride. As they say, a privilege and an honor. It really is. Um, All right, everybody. We're going to get back to what's going on today in the world of business, as we will for another 25 years. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.